and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We're two friends who studied archaeology together and love history. Um, and also making things. So Liz, what are you making at the moment? I am making a secret surprise for your birthday. Oh gosh. I will only tell you there is thread. Okay. There is a pun. I am super excited. Is is it something embroidered, perhaps? I'm not giving you more than that. Oh, no! <laughs> <laughs> this sucks, but also I love it. Thank you. And <laughs> <laughs> um, we've also been continuing the cook something from a random country thing that we've been doing. We made a uh, kabsa, which is a Middle Eastern chicken thing, um, which Nick wasn't sure about because it's one of those Middle Eastern things that's like, okay, you've got your meat, you've got your sauce, you've got your rice, and then you've got your orange and your almonds. Okay. Oh, that sounds pretty good, actually. Absolutely gorgeous. Like, almond and chicken is chef's kiss. <laughs> and now I have a load of just loose, well not loose, but a load of spare almond in the cupboard, so I'm going to have to make some orange and almond cookies or something. I was just imagining you with a cupboard full of loose almonds, <laughs> like you open it and they all just fall on you. And that did happen to me with poppy seeds once. <laughs> oh, no. There are worse things to have fall on your face, was, I guess. It was a mess. <laughs> so what? What have you been making or baking? Um, I'm in the planning stages of a new project, um, conveniently ignoring like the other 2000 that I have started. Crafter, um, if you don't have at least five projects on the go at once. Yeah, like if you don't have just continual low level guilt from all of the projects you haven't finished, it's, it's not, not real. Um, so, uh, I have some green linen fabric that I bought a few years ago on sale. And I think I have a couple of meters of it, I think. So I want to make a skirt, but I have been learning Hardanger embroidery recently. So if you haven't heard of Hardanger, it's a traditional Norwegian style of embroidery that involves cut work so you cut some of the threads and you like wrap them with the embroidery threads to make sort of cut work patterns um so I thought it would be quite fun if I made like uh this episode goes up um yes I will do um I thought it would be quite fun to make a kind of modern style um I'm gonna make just like a simple green circle skirt and then make some hardanger pieces in red embroidery to um to decorate it with and that's the plan sounds so. really <laughs> it does sound a bit christmasy it hopefully won't look too christmasy <laughs> hey why not have a christmas skirt i just i like the combination of red and green why does it have to be christmas <laughs> well, the style as well i think but, but genuinely, why not have a Christmas skirt? Just have some nice thick tights underneath. You'll be fine. <laughs> I'll just stand in place of the tree. <laughs> and people will hang chocolates on me. 
already hang chocolates on you if that's what you really want. Aww. That's, that's true friendship. Find you somebody who will hang chocolates on you. <laughs> so, at the risk of do- going down some very weird rabbit hole, um, what are we learning about today? Well, it's funny you should mention weird random rabbit holes because um, today I have a pretty niche subject to talk about, but um, I thought it was a really interesting one. Um, so we've not we've done a lot of sort of food history things recently, but not so many textile ones. So I thought I would talk about knitting in prisons Ooh. and the history of that, which apparently is a thing. I guess um, that makes sense. Like it's a very sort of calming activity. Yeah, um, but it turns out it was done for quite a few other reasons, especially in the 19th century. Um, some good, some not so good. I'm scared now. You said 19th <laughs> yeah. century prisons, I'm scared. <laughs> yeah, well, um, I'm also going to mention prison reform and Elizabeth Fry and like things getting a bit better. So <laughs> it's, not, it's not all like terrible. Um, and there's a lot more to this than I first thought as well. So I got... I got started off on this um, when I read an article in the Knitter magazine, um, which if you're in the UK, you can get through the library service for free online, um, which is great. So there was an article about um, knitting. It's called Knitting Behind Bars or yeah, Knitting Behind Bars in the 19th century. It's an issue 122 of The Knitter by Penelope Hemingway. Um, and it's, it was about knitting in Victorian prisons, um, which I had no idea was a thing. Um, so apparently prisons kind of before the whole prison reform movement were obviously a pretty horrible place to be. And you were kind of, on your own like if you were in a old-timey prison um you basically had to um try and do do what you could to maybe get some money to survive or something um and as you might expect people were not having a great time in there um and then in the 19th century they decided oh wait, we can get people to do work for free in prison. Um, Which of course still goes on today. Um, And there are some companies today that still use unpaid prison labor, Um, not only in less developed countries, but in the US and the UK as well. Um, So yeah, definitely check that out and um, maybe have your say on it. Um, I think famously at this point, um, when uh, slavery was ended in the US, there was a specific stipulation of accept as punishment for a crime, which is still there. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's pretty bad. (laughs) So, yeah, not not to get into too dark a uh, part of history uh, on this bit. Um, but 
it kind of started out as um, they would have to do these monotonous chores like um, in the male prisons, things like road breaking or picking oakum, which is where you kind of unpick like ropes and stuff to be used for other things. Um, yeah, if and... you read Oliver Twist, there's talk about doing that in the workhouse. Mm, definitely. Um, and in the women's prisons, they would do things like knitting stockings, um, which is, I mean, if you've seen Victor- like early Victorian stockings, they're very, very fine and hand-knitted. So that is quite tedious work. Um, and often the yarns would be provided by the prison, like they'd be the property of the prison governor or something. And then these prisoners would, female prisoners would have to um, knit the stockings and then they would be sold basically for the profit of the governor, um, which is a pretty exploitative system. Now, there were some ways around this. Um, in fact, it's recorded that the women would sometimes um, basically nick some of the yarn, like hide it away and then make things for their own purposes that could be sold. Um, and in fact, there's one record of, uh, in this article, a lady called Ellen McGurch, which is a great name, who was found at her release to be wearing an undershift with stock- stockings sewn to it and the hem doubled up. In the doubled up hem were secreted many muffetees, little knitted mittens. So, obviously, this enterprising lady was uh, out to try and make herself a bit of money on her release. Good for her. Um, Yeah, so often they would be able to earn a bit of money by it, um, and they would be able to sell them in the prison, um, like through the grates to people, and also during the assizes. So during the trials, they would be able to sell them to spectators of the trials. Um, and so, yeah, by, by doing that, they were able to earn a little bit of money. Uh, in fact... You wear socks from a trial, basically. <laughs> basically, you could go and watch a trial and then just do your haberdashery shopping at the same time. <laughs> I, mean, I guess it's convenient. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in fact, it actually pops up in the journal of Anne Lister, of all people. Um, so if, you, if you're listening and you've not yet heard of uh, Anne Lister, she was a um, 19th century landowner from Yorkshire uh, who wrote diaries um which were recently i think she wrote them in code didn't she i believe so um yeah and they were recently um translated and it turns out she was a notorious lesbian um and there was a recently a bbc series made about her called gentleman jack yeah uh, around jones if um, you're on Tumblr, you've definitely seen photo sets of it probably um Surround yeah. Jones looking very austere. <laughs> um I'm really liking the 
Victorian butch lesbian look, though. Like, it's, it's good. Um, anyway, she writes on Thursday, the 18th of October, 1821, um, in York. Went over the bridge, went shopping with my aunt, walked with my aunt around the castle yard because she wanted some knitted nightcaps of the debtors. So that's York Castle, which has a great museum in it. Um, so yeah, early knitting in prisons could be as a punishment, essentially, as unpaid labour, or as a subversive way to make a bit of money for yourself or smuggle out some valuable goods on your release um, and was mainly done in the women's prisons. Now, when the prison reform movement began um, with Elizabeth Fry, one of the ways in which she tried to improve the situation of women in prison was that she um, well started teaching people to read and to do occupations like knitting um, and they were able to actually earn some money from it like legitimately so the women's I think it was the women's prison visiting association um, would go into prisons and teach the inmates to knit. And then they would hold these knitting circles and the money and the items they knitted would be sold by the, um, the visiting women on behalf of the prisoners. And then they would hopefully be able to keep some of the money that they would be able to get on their release. Um, so... I realise this is a slight distraction, but calling them knitting circles, I, I imagine they weren't quite as twee as that, but I am just imagining the cell block tango from Chicago as just like a little knitting, like knitting natter. I was like, I'll never guess what my husband did, I'll be tell. I love the uh, knitting revenge fantasy circle idea there. <laughs> I mean, have you been to a knitting circle? Yeah, <laughs> that is exactly the kind of thing. <laughs> My theory about it is that because knitting, like, kind of relaxes your mind and the movement of your hands takes your mind off things and makes you feel less nervous, and then that means that you just end up saying stuff that you normally would filter out. Um. I mean, that would explain some of the conversations at the Knitting Society when we were at uni. It was. <laughs> Knit Sock After Dark was uh, notorious. Um, our Knitting Society was called Knit Sock. It was great. We were very cool. <laughs> we were cool because it was entirely queer nerds. And, <laughs> you know, we're, we're coming to the forefront. Oh yeah, I mean, we're we're in these days, <laughs> <laughs> at least in the knitting world. Um, it was it was great though because it was just such a diverse group, um, and there was someone who could teach you anything as well. Yeah. Um, 
But anyway, prison knitting. <laughs> I imagine they weren't like prison particularly school. gossipy. Sorry? Prison, school. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> I imagine they weren't particularly like gossipy, everyone's best friends kind of knitting circles. But, um, but they did manage to significantly improve the conditions of women in the prison, which had a massive effect on reoffending. Actually, um, in fact, um, I think the following year after they did it, only four inmates ended up back in prison the next year uh, compared to the men's rate which was like 47 or 50 um I, I mean not not to be social theorist on Maine yeah I mean who knew? Like someone a means of supporting themselves and a purpose means yeah. they're less likely to do a crime yeah and also like you know giving them a means by which they can earn money which they will have when they get out so they don't get out with no money and then have to commit another crime yeah um but anyway sorry (laughs) sorry um no i mean this is also like a heavily like social issue podcast as well as craft history so (laughs) and this particular subject is i mean they're kind of hand in hand um so yeah that that um teaching skills as a way of improving the conditions and the um, agency of people who were imprisoned um, was was quite a radical thing in the 19th century. And and it did do quite a lot to improve conditions, um, particularly in the female prisons. Uh, And in fact, a lot of the... Um, the rights that prisoners now have today, at least in the UK, are um, date back to Elizabeth Fry and the prison reform movement. Um, so moving into the 20th century, I actually found a really cool story, um, which I did not expect at all. So... In the 19th century, knitting was basically a way to make money um, while you were in prison. But in the 20th century and today, um, it's it's more of a therapeutic thing. Um, partly because it's very difficult to make money from knitting in the present day, um, or at least hand knitting. Um, and also because now there is, thankfully, a lot more focus on the well-being of people in prison, although certainly not enough. Um, and so this is uh, taking place in Robben Island, which is the infamous South African prison where former president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela, was imprisoned for 18 years. Um, and this is a story about one of the prisoners, a man called Jerome Make, I don't know how to pronounce that, M-A-A-K-A-E, um, who had been taught to knit during the days before his arrest in the 80s. And he was living in a safe house at the time. And his hostess, who was a professional knitter, taught him to knit to give him something to do. And then once he was in prison, 
he requested some wool and some needles from the prison authorities, who apparently were quite reluctant. Um, but eventually... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, there's a whole uh, debate about whether or not knitting needles are allowed on planes at the moment, I think. Um, I've certainly flown with them before, but apparently some airlines consider them weapons. So... I was going to say you could take a crochet hook instead, but you could do some serious ocular damage with a crochet hook. Definitely. <laughs> Not that I'm considering it, but you could. Um, if you were that way inclined. <laughs> so eventually they gave him some plastic needles. Uh, and other prisoners saw what he was doing and asked him to teach them. And he ended up teaching a lot of the other inmates the craft of knitting. And apparently in the evenings, the prisoners would visit one another's cells and take their knitting with them. Um, That's which, really cute. Yeah, it's quite a nice story. And I like that as a way of, you know, as a way of creating community um, in a place that's often quite infamous for you know, having rivalries and stuff. Um, and in a place where you're like actively discouraged from forming communities um <laughs> so yeah i like that as yeah kind of as a way of reclaiming something that you're doing for yourself um and doing it together with other people That's which kind of yeah it's just it's a nice little story so moving into the present day, um, that's kind of what's happening now is that um, now there is a lot more focus on well-being and mental health, um, or certainly there is in any <laughs> like any organization that um, is trying to be decent. Um, and so there's a program, um, I think it started off in America with a program called Knitting Behind Bars, um, which uses knitting as a kind of mindfulness technique. And so they, um, they got permission after about five years <laughs> to go into a prison in America and, um, basically start a knitting group and this was a men's prison so at first um the prison authorities were all like oh nobody's gonna want to do this you know like men don't want to knit um, yeah. <laughs> yeah um which i which we know is not true because of knits knitting society <laughs> um but um yeah, so they were just like, no one's going to want to do this. Like, what's the point? Um, but eventually they got permission to do it. And they took the needles and the yarn in um, and started this group. And slowly people started coming to it. And um, yeah, apparently it's been pretty successful um, as a, uh, a well-being thing, as a way to practice mindfulness and... Um, a lot of the people knit for charity. So it kind of, or, or knit things for their families uh, outside. So it's, yeah, kind of a way to 
um, to reclaim that sense of being somebody who contributes rather than being stuck somewhere where you can't do anything um, and contributing to things that you actually care about and to like your family and stuff instead of like having to work for some company that's not paying you. Um, and that's that kind of um, program is uh is spreading i think there's a few others like it that i've read about um so yeah i think that's a good development that's really lovely um yeah so that kind of ends on a somewhat more positive note than it began. Um, but I wanted to talk about that because it's just something I never even knew was a thing or considered at all until I read this article. And then I was like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if there's more to it. And there was. Mm-hmm. As with many things. So yeah, that wasn't too, um, I didn't go into too many specifics on the craft, um, but it was more the use of it that I was interested in, in this case. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it, it all sort of comes together to tell the stories, doesn't it? Yeah, and I, I mean, that is kind of what we do, isn't it, on Bread and Thread, is we tell a story through something specific and then we look at a strange local food hello i'm mod paper from probably bad rpg ideas and we have a podcast if you'd like to hear rpg advice on how to use assorted incredibly bad ideas as actual ideas in an actual game then listen to the probably bad podcast available on pretty much every podcatcher and remember to have a probably bad day <laughs> so what is our local larder today i thought that i would talk about clotted cream because i was talking to some americans and realized that when you've not grown up with the term it sounds absolutely foul now that you mention it yeah a clot doesn't have great connotations does it not hugely <laughs> Okay, I'll, I'll bite. Tell me more about the cream. Um, so this is basically um, the fat of the cream, of the milk, separated off um, because it's easier to preserve just the creamy bit on its own, um, kind of the same as we make butter. Okay. Um, which seems to have been a thing in um, Phoenicia. Wow. Um, which is now the sort of Syria, Lebanon, Israel area. This is pretty old. Um, but it's most well known in as a product of Devon and Cornwall in England. 
Yeah, you always have um, jam and clotted cream on your scones, right? I'll I'll get into this. <laughs> oh, um, is there going to be scone debate? There is scontroversy. Scone discourse. Oh, oh no. Oh no. <laughs> Do you need a moment? <laughs> no, I'm fine. Continue. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's a debate as to... It may have been introduced by traders who came to that area looking for tin. Um, because this, the Devon Cornwall area has been trading tin with the rest of the world since forever, basically. Um, although um, an ancient Greek geographer called Strabo... That's a good name. Um, ...apparently mentioned uh, British people um, doing a similar thing to what the Phoenicians were doing. So it's kind of unclear whether it was independently thought of, which seems more likely to me, because it it seems kind of obvious that like mm -hmm. you take the water out of something and it lasts longer. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> we, we don't go around going, ah, but where did you get the idea for butter from? <laughs> I'd say that archaeologists exist. There the probably is someone that goes around trying to make like a map of butter. I'm sure, I'm sure someone somewhere has done that. Um, Archaeology gets very specific. Um, but we do know that it was being made by monks in Tavistock um, in Devon in the 14th century. Okay. And it was a well-known well enough term that I think I mentioned in the trifle episodes um, in the 17th century, we have mentions of clouted cream. That sounds like someone's beaten up a dish of cream. It does. Um, but also, like, no such thing as standardised spelling at this point, so they... Mm -hmm. From context, we think that they probably meant clotted cream. Okay. Not just that somebody decided to have a fight with some cream. Well, the thing is, if you beat up cream, it becomes butter. Yeah, that's a good point. To make clotted cream, you actually very... It's sort of a low and slow cooking of the cream. Okay. Which is why it often has sort of a crust on the top, which ah, is the best bit. I didn't realise it was cooked. Okay, that... Yeah, that there's, a lot, a lot of sense. there's a lot of instructions online for how to make your own clotted cream. Mm -hmm. um, the agreement seems to be basically you heat it very, very slowly, um, basically overnight, and then you let it cool down very, very slowly for another, like, eight hours. And then that the cream separates out, and you get the nice yellow skin, which, as I said, is the best bit, and then the clotted cream... And then the, the basically way that you can just get rid of. That seems like quite a complicated process. Is it complicated? Or is it just hard to achieve without access to a fire? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess in ye olden times when people would have had a fire going in the house all day, it's a bit easier. 
Yeah, because I imagine you could basically just suspend a container of cream over a fire and just let it do its thing. Huh. Okay. Um, but the controversy that I was talking about, I promise not to make the pun again, <laughs> is... What if I want you to? <laughs> is whether you put the jam or the cream on your scone first. Ah, yes. And it's very much a, one is the way Cornwall does it, one is the way Devon does it. There is only uh, one right, right way, but everyone will tell you a different way. Oh, I have to ask you, Hazel. Jam or cream first? Now, I, I'm kind of a fan of the cream first, because if you put the jam on first, and then you try and spread the cream, it just kind of turns into like a, a kind of mixed up mess. Whereas if you put the cream on first, the jam is easier to spread, so it doesn't get so like mixed you see i'm cream on first because i find it hard to spread the cra the cream on the jam without it mixing okay but i feel like we should ask nick also being from not from devon or cornwall but nearer to it than either of us <laughs> jam or cream first <laughs> thanks um also cream okay yeah, but in 2013, mm -hmm. um, the clotted cream company, uh, Rodders, oh, which yeah. is um, Cornwall-based, commissioned a study by Dr. Eugenia Cheng of Sheffield, <laughs> which concluded that the answer is, in fact, jam first. Really? Yeah. Wow. Wait, Although, for, famously, for David, Ca David Cameron did that first while in Devon and it didn't go down well. <laughs> um, oh, was, that, was that a big political faux pas? It, it was made out to be one, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> On the same level as um, Ed Miliband and the bacon sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we could do an episode on um, famous political food-related gaffes. If people have any examples of them, let us know. I would love to do this. <laughs> um, but interestingly, sort of my, my final thing on clotted cream is it's very hard to get in America... Okay. Because generally, um, homo sorry, unhomogenized milk is also unpasteurized. Ah. And you cannot sell unpasteurized milk in the US. Yeah. Because obviously it's easier to make it with unhomogenized milk. Although I've seen some people use single cream, just as mm -hmm. it's, it's already partly separated. Okay. Wow. But the process of pasteurization is basically um, heating it to a certain level, right? Yeah, but it's, a, it's uh, faster. Oh, I see. Does it go to a higher temperature as well? Or... Um, 
thing is, I haven't seen any specific temperatures for um, making your own clotted cream. I'm sure they are out there, but generally it just says a low to, low to medium heat. Okay. Whereas pasteurizing has to be hot. Yeah. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so that wouldn't work for making clotted cream. Ah, wow. So, yet another thing that you cannot have in America. Like, thanks, if you want, thanks to the man. If you want a scone with clotted cream and blackberry jam in the US, and blackcurrant jam, I'm going to start that sentence again. If you want a scone with clotted cream and blackcurrant jam in the US, you're out of luck. Is that the most illegal scone? I think that is the most illegal scone. <laughs> Scontraband. <laughs> I'm glad you also got to do a terrible pun. Thanks. It, it makes me happy. Any trouble is I won't be able to stop it just gone now. Interestingly, um, Cornish clotted cream is a protected designation of origin. Okay. Um, so that's a thing in the EU where basically you can only put the place name on your product if it's actually from there. Mm-hmm. Um, it applies to a lot of cheeses, I think. Okay, it's and actually... wines, right? Um, I don't know if champagne is a sort of geographically protected thing or if it's just... People are like that. <laughs> okay. It's only clotted cream if it comes from Cornwall. Otherwise, it's just warm milk. Okay, champagne is legally, yes. Um, <laughs> other British ones include uh, Melton Mowbray pork pies. Oh, yeah. And Herefordshire cider. Ah, didn't know that. I've literally never heard of that. Oh, you just you're just not deep in the cider world. <laughs> no. Or, or the list of projected designation of origins. <laughs> Damn, I need to up my regional foods game. <laughs> so yeah, that is the surprisingly controversial <laughs> clotted cream. Oh, thank you. That was most informative. Which I'm gonna continue putting Cream first. I yeah, be a rebel. Do it your way. Or maybe I'll mix it up. I don't know. I don't have strong feelings about <laughs> the order. I mean, yeah, neither of us are from Devon or Cornwall, so I, I suppose it's more of an intellectual exercise at this point rather than like a deep conviction. Well, yeah, I'm I'm from the north. It's much it's a much bigger controversy whether it's scone or scone. After <laughs> it's gone, fight me. I use them interchangeably. Does that make me a bad person? <laughs> I think that's just proof that you're bi. <laughs> I feel called out. <laughs> okay. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this interesting journey of prison know, reform and scones. <laughs> um, 
you can you can find us at bread and thread on twitter and email us bread and thread podcast at gmail.com we are also on patreon um just bread and thread if you want access to recipes and instructional and educational videos uh, i believe hazel is working on one about her chickens there'll be chickens and there will be inkle weaving um please tweet at us your favorite examples of political food faux pas whether you put on the cream or the jam first <laughs> oh yeah that's an important one um, Might do a poll. <laughs> um and see you next time when we will have a special guest oh another special guest no we're just recording out of order <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> I got excited I thought we were having another one <laughs> but yeah go go out and have some clotted cream if you can legally do so <laughs> and we'll see you next time <laughs> <laughs>